Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles again to the book of Mark. It's the second book of the New Testament, if you're just joining us. And we'll be looking at a very familiar passage today in Mark chapter 12. Love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. These two commands are real familiar to many of us. And I wonder if when we read those words these days, we kind of skim over them. You know, we don't really stop to consider them and to let their weight sink into our souls. Maybe they're like the airplanes that fly by my house in Murdoch. You know, when we first moved in, all I thought about was airplanes. You know, all I could see was airplanes. All I could hear was airplanes. All my dreams were consumed with airplanes, all kinds of airplanes crashing into my house, all these crazy things. Airplanes were everywhere. Couldn't get them out of my mind. Well, and then all of a sudden, just one day, just in an instant, what happened? Just didn't notice them anymore. It was like they were gone. I got used to them. I ignored them. And so it is, I think, with passages like this one. Maybe the force of these commands just kind of wanes over time. It loses its strength. Maybe we've ignored it altogether and just read right through them because these commands are so familiar to us. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to raise our awareness of this passage. And I just want to pause for a few minutes. And I want to look at these seven verses that are so common to us, that many of us have memorized, that many of us know by heart. I want to pause and I want to look at this passage that's often called the Great Commandment. It's my prayer that this morning we'll see it with new eyes and that our hearts will be transformed. So why don't we pray to that end right now. Father, so many of us know these commands. We've grown up memorizing these verses. But, oh God, would we not just glance over these words as if we've lived these truths out in our own lives or as if we've simply moved beyond them? Father, help us to be transformed by them and may our affections for you grow even this morning. Let us go out through those doors in a few minutes changed. Father, we pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and begin reading in the passage. We'll be looking at Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. So let me read, beginning in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus saw that he had answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. We're going to see three things in this passage today. Three things uh, this morning. First, we're going to see the problem we all have. It's a problem that each and every one of us has. We'll see that first in verse 28. And then second, we'll see the life we all need. So first, there's a problem. And then second, a life we all need. 
And third, we'll see the hope we can all have. The hope we can all have. So a problem, a life, and then finally a hope that we can all have. Well, let's start with the first point. The problem we all have. There's a problem that each and every one of us has, and we see that in the passage. Now remember the context. We're in the middle of Passover week, or Passion Week specifically. Jesus entered on Monday in the triumphal entry, and on Friday he's going to be crucified and killed. And now we're right in the middle of the week. It's Wednesday. And we've seen a number of religious leaders called the Sanhedrin confront Jesus. These were these 70 or so men, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes who made up this council, who ran the temple, and they hated Jesus. I mean, they were infuriated with Jesus because he had ruined their temple business. They hated Jesus because of his popularity. It was threatening their leadership, and so they wanted to discredit him. They wanted him dead, but they were afraid of the crowds. And so they try to get the people to turn against him, maybe to see him as a rebel. And so they set up some traps. Remember last week when the Pharisees and Herodians came and they set up this trap about giving to Caesar? And Jesus answered. And then the Sadducees came and had this trap about, what, what about marriage at the resurrection? There can't be a resurrection because there can't be marriage in heaven. And Jesus answers them. Well, today we see another trap, but this time it's a scribe. It's a religious or uh, law expert, a legal expert, and this scribe has a question of his own. And the goal of this particular confrontation, really the goal of all these confrontations that we've been studying these last couple weeks, is to try to get Jesus to answer something contrary to Moses in the Old Testament. They want him to say something different, maybe even say that he has superseded Moses, that he's greater than Moses, so that they can label him a heretic. So they can get the masses of people to turn from following Jesus to yell for his crucifixion. Well, what was the question? Well, it was what looks like a simple question. It's a short question. It's, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Now, while this was a trap, this was a pretty typical question among the scribes. And they would have debated this over coffee late at night if they had some free time. It would have been on their minds because, because there were 613 of them. 613 laws in this Mosaic law that the Jews had to obey. And so the scribes would organize them. They would organize them in both heavy laws, meaning important ones, and then the lighter laws, those that were less important. And then beyond that, they would begin to rank these laws. Okay, what's the most important? And then what's, you know, what's down there at the bottom that we could kind of skip? If we, if we just can't get to it. And you can imagine the sheer magnitude, the sheer weight of 613 laws. I mean, you thought Ten Commandments was bad and a heavy burden. Well, it's impossible to know with 613 whether you're even keeping the law. It's impossible to even memorize all that if you're just a normal person. No, this pressure was crushing. The demands of the law would destroy anyone and so what the scribes are basically asking here is they're asking, what, Jesus, what's the minimum requirements of the law? What's the bare minimum to get into heaven? We know it's impossible to keep them all, so surely there's a few basic ones. Why don't you tell us, what's, what's the key to the law? What's the one thing that we need to obey? See, in reality, this isn't just the scribes' problem in feeling the weight of the law, is it? It's really our problem as well. When we look at the law, when we look at the Ten Commandments in the Bible and we see these things, we realize we can't do it. We feel the crushing weight of them. 
In fact, there is some places in Scripture uh, where Jesus is talking, at least in Matthew 5, where he tells us that you can, you can get to heaven on your own. You really can. But see, to do that, you have to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's it's impossible. No one can do that. In fact, you go later on in the book of Romans, Paul says that it's impossible that there's none righteous, not even one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That none of us can attain to this perfect obedience to the law and God's commandments. No, the law is crushing to us. Even if you don't know those passages or haven't heard them before, if you examine your own heart, you can see that you're wicked, that you've transgressed against God. I mean, I've never run into anyone that says, oh yeah, sin. Well, I don't, I don't really struggle with sin. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I've got no problem with that. I mean, okay, Jesus... He's there. I'll just keep him in the back corner just in case I need him one day. You know, but my wife, if you would, if you would ask my wife, she would say, wow, this guy's perfect. He's a good man. He's good looking. He's really nice. He's never yelled at me. He's never raised his voice. He's never argued with me. He's tender. He's sweet. Now, all of us husbands would be pretty worried if we brought your wife right up on platform here, right? And I just began quizzing her. And she had a little lie detector test on her and she had to tell the truth. I think you'd be pretty terrified right now in your seats, right? Wondering, what? Get, get someone else's wife up here, you know, get them up. I'm, I'm scared, I'm done. No, no, none of our wives, none of our friends, none of our spouses, no one around us would say, well, that guy, that guy, he's perfect. That gal, she's without sin. No, no one would say that. And even worse than that, God wouldn't say that about each one of us. No, we know we've sinned, we know we've messed up. Even David and you know, his sin with Bathsheba, he had hurt her, he had hurt the army, he had killed Uriah, obviously hurt him and his family. And then in Psalm 51, he confesses and says, against the Lord alone, against God, have I sinned. He recognized his sin before God in those serious instances. And then in the other Psalms, even in his thought life and his motives, he says, God, I have sinned against you. No, none of us is perfect. None of us can be 100% faithful to the law. It's humanly impossible. In fact, that wasn't the point of the law at all. So the point of the law, even in the Old Testament, it wasn't to save us. It wasn't for us to try to follow these 613 things as if they were a stairway up to heaven. No, that wasn't the point. The point of the law was to crush us. I don't know if you knew that, but the point of the law in the Bible, the point of these commands from God to the people of Israel and to us was to crush us. It was to destroy us. It was to show us that we have no hope of getting to God on our own. These sacrifices were there to point us that we needed one to be sacrificed in our place for us. In the book uh, Pilgrim's Progress, maybe you've read this great Christian classic. When this book, Pilgrim, the main character, he abandons his journey to God. He abandons his journey and he decides he wants to go to meet Mr. Legality on the top uh, of Mount Sinai in the town of morality. He decides, I'm just going to go buy a house in the town of morality, and I'm going to climb this mountain and see Mr. Legality. So he gets his things together, and he starts climbing up the mountain. At first, it's pretty easy. The sand's pretty soft. He's making his way up, and things are good. He's thinking, I'm going to get there before dinner. And then all of a sudden, on his way up, the road just kind of curves. And it doesn't curve to the side, to the left, or to the right, but it curves up, and it keeps curving up, and it keeps curving up and he keeps walking and he realizes that he can't walk anymore and he looks up and he sees that any moment now Mount Sinai is going to crash down on his head and he freaks out and he, he freezes 
And he realizes he can't go on anymore. That this journey to the town of morality will never work. He can never get there. Friends, this is the same for us. That by being a good person, by following God's laws, we can never get there. We can never get to God. And so what these scribes are doing in our passage, what these religious leaders are doing, is they're asking Jesus, can you put this commandment, can you put these 613 commandments kind of in a more workable form? Can you give us something we can actually accomplish? Can you give us just one or two of them? Maybe then we have hope to obey them. So friends, there's a problem that we all have. It's that we are crushed by the law. That the law doesn't save us. There's no hope. So Jesus responds to the scribe with another way. The law crushes us. There's a problem. Well, Jesus gives us another way to live, and he paints a remarkable picture of the life we all need. We see that in verse 29 and following, that the second point is the life we all need. So if you take a notes, the second point here is the life. And Jesus answers the scribe by reciting something called the Shema, or it means hear, hear, O Israel. It's the passage from Deuteronomy 6 that Thunkachin just read for us a few minutes ago. This Shema was the most famous creed for the Jews. It was their John 3.16. They would recite it every morning out loud when they got up. They would put it on their poster boards at their sporting events. They would put it on birthday cakes and cupcakes. It was everywhere. The Shema. This was their verse. This was their creed. And it was given to the Israelites right before they went into the promised land. So Moses is dying. Joshua is about to lead them in to the land of milk and honey. You can imagine God's thinking, well, we're about to send them in out of slavery, out of wandering in the desert to this land just flowing with milk, just flowing with honey, this remarkable place. I need to remind them of something. I need to remind them that I and the one God of the universe. So he gives them the book of Deuteronomy that is written really just one month, right as the Israelites are on the precipice, on the cusp of the promised land. Remember this, Israelites. Remember that the Lord God is one, that there are no other gods. Don't get distracted in this new land. Follow me. Therefore, since there's only one God, you're to love me with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And he gives the scribes the chief commandment. All your, all your, all your, all yours. See these all yours. Jesus wants all of our passion, all of our prayers, all of our intelligence, all of our might, all of our energy. We are to give back to God because it's he who has given it to us in the first place. He wants your ambitions. He wants your energy from your thought life, to your love life. He's the one who made you. He's the one who claims you. And he wants it all. Richard Sibbs, a great British Puritan in the 17th century, once put it well and said, Whatsoever a man loves more than God, God will make it his bane and ruin. You think about it. Whatever it is we're loving more than God, whatever it is we're chasing after more than God will eventually lead to your ruin. It'll leave you empty. It'll never satisfy. It'll become the bane of your existence. I mean, think about it this morning. Think about 
what makes you happy. Think about what you're wanting right now in your life. Just depending on your personal circumstances, if only I had blank, then I'd be happy. What would you fill in that blank this morning? If only I had blank, then I'd be happy. If only I had blank, then my life would be complete. Then I would be overjoyed. Then I would be satisfied. What is it in that blank for you? Is there something other than God that is vying for your affections? You see, the only thing that will make you happy in that blank is Jesus. If only I have Jesus, then I'll be happy. That's the only thing that will fulfill that equation. So this morning, is there something vying for your chief allegiance today? Is there something vying with Jesus that you're pursuing, that you're going after Maybe it's that you want to get married or have a child so badly that your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength spends all of its time consumed with those things. Or how about that promotion? Maybe that extra salary or prestige or power is on your mind and it's so important that you're killing yourself at work right now. You're killing your body at work. You're destroying your family by working so hard. I mean, do you daydream about new ways to make money or new bank accounts you can open or new things to buy, new holidays to go on. Or maybe it's approval from others. Maybe the most important thing for you today, maybe you're blank. Maybe the thing you want more than anything else to make you happy is approval. Maybe you just want a safe face in front of others. Maybe you just don't want people to think that you struggle, that you have problems. Maybe you lie to other people. Maybe you lie to us. Maybe you lied to, to the church. Maybe you're here on a Friday morning and someone asks, how are you doing? What's going on with your heart? What's going on with your family? And you just smile and say, everything's going well. Everything's going great. Family's going great. My wife's doing wonderful. Job's good. I'm walking with the Lord. I love Jesus. I'm pursuing him. I'm reading my Bible. All these things. And yet you're lying. Now, I want to call it what it is. I mean, it's not, you know, just hiding some of the truth. It's not just being quiet. No, we lie when we do that. But I want us to think for a second, why do you do that? Why do you lie? I caught myself this morning. Some people asked me, how are you doing? And I had to pause and then just kind of wait for a minute and then give the real answer because I think we want to save face. We want the approval from others. We want people to think that we are great, that we have it together. But friends, look around. We are sinners, number one. Number two, we live in the UAE, we live in Dubai, we live in Sharjah. Our lives aren't easy, are they? Some difficult circumstances in our lives. We don't all have it together. Now, friend, is it approval that you're seeking to make you happy? Does seeking the approval of others lay claim on your heart, on your mind, on your soul, on your strength? Or maybe you're chasing sex and alcohol. Maybe you've placed your hope in parties and social life. And so you get your significance in finding another date and seeing how far you can go physically. It's another man or another woman that you put in your life to try to get the deep affirmation that only God can give. You know, the slavery to lust take up all of your soul, all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Friend, these idols and false gods will never, ever, 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 ever satisfy you. And you say to yourself, these things will bring me significance, they'll bring me security, they'll bring me joy. But the more you search for them, that's what Richard Sibbs was saying, the more you search for them, the emptier you'll be. And even if you're enjoying these idols now, maybe 
You want to say, Dave, well, last night I enjoyed some of the lusts of the flesh and it was fun. Well, friend, I want to tell you that those things cannot ultimately satisfy you. And eventually, these very things that you think will bring you happiness will lead to your bane and ruin and destruction. You will crash and you will burn because we are eternal beings who are meant for so much more. And your capacity for joy to engage your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength can only be filled by an infinitely enjoyable being. It's the only one that can fill that blank. Blaise Pascal was a famous philosopher a couple hundred years ago, and he would always talk about this. He'd always say that in each of our hearts, there was a God-shaped vacuum that existed. And then as we go about our lives, we would try to fill that vacuum with all kinds of things, all kinds of earthly pleasures, all kinds of desires, all kinds of hopes. And we try to fill it in, but nothing would ultimately satisfy us. What he was saying is that only God can satisfy our hearts. That the only way to come out of this idolatry of self or things is to love Jesus. See, friend, you were made to love him. Years ago, I was visiting with a president of a Christian organization, and I sat with this man, and I asked him what success was for one of their Christian employees And he answered me pretty quickly and said, you know, this might surprise you a bit. Success isn't that you grow a big church or you have a famous ministry or you see people come to faith. You have lots of new Christians. No, that's not success. No, success for me is that when someone leaves our organization, that they would love Jesus more on that day than when they started. And he looked at me and said, Dave, when you go out to Dubai and you start this church and you start this ministry, I want you to remember that success isn't how big the church grows It isn't how much money comes in. It isn't how many ministries you start. It isn't how good you look. No, success is on the day you leave Dubai, whether it's 10, 50 years, whatever it is, do you love Jesus more on that day than when you first stepped on the sand of the Arabian Peninsula? It's kind of stunning for me to hear because I'd always heard these other measures of success. Well, friend, is that that true for you today? Just think back to your journey here in the Middle East. Has your love for God grown since you moved here? Or have you embraced the lie of Dubai and sold out your heart and sold out your mind and sold out your strength, sold out your soul to these wicked things? This is as important as a question we can ask ourselves right now. So when you leave this place, be it Next week or 30 years from now, will your affections for Christ be greater on that day? So because of that, we arrange our lives around Jesus, aren't we? As Christians, we read our Bibles because they're the very words of God, the one God of the universe. We devour it because by thinking God's thoughts after him, we grow in holiness, we grow in godliness. And so we read our Bibles, but we also, we also pray We talk to God because God is the king of kings who sits on his throne. And he hears every single word that we say. And let that just melt your heart for a minute. God, our creator and sustainer, hears every word you pray. I hope that never gets old for you to know that. That even right now where you sit, God hears your prayers. So we pray to him in any time, any place, any situation. 
Because you're Christians and love Jesus, it means we fast from certain things at times. Perhaps we fast from food to concentrate on God, or maybe we fast from things like internet or, or sports or hobbies. We, we do that because Jesus is more important than our food, because Jesus is more important than our hobbies. He's more important than our lives, and so we plan our days around Jesus. We prioritize them over reading our emails or checking our social media accounts. We prioritize Jesus over everything. We build our day around Christ. Now, this is utterly vital for us as Christians because, did you notice the second part of the commandment here? There's no way to keep the second part of the commandment if we're not keeping the first. That's why they go together, and that's why the first one comes first, and that's why the second one follows. Love your neighbor as yourself. And from Luke 10, we know that our neighbor is, we see this story, the Good Samaritan. We know that our neighbor is anyone because we're all made in the image of God. But without loving God, this is impossible. Love for our neighbor will spring naturally from loving our God. It'll be a natural consequence. I think my good old friend Horatius Bonar puts it really, really well. He wrote this book called Words to Winners of Souls in the 1800s. He was a pastor. He was a great friend of Robert Murray McShane. Some of you read a Bible plan that he put out. And Horatius wrote this book to, to people that are seeking ministry in their lives, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's full-time ministry, really any Christian who desires to honor God. And it's one of my favorite books. It's a little thin book. It's an obscure book that no one's ever heard of, but I, I keep it next to my computer. And I put my mouse right on top of the book just so I can look down on it and remember its truths from time to time. And I think he puts this really well. Listen to his words written almost 200 years ago. He says, We have allowed business, study, or active labor to interfere with our closet hours. Why so many meetings with our fellow men, yet so few meetings with God? Why so little being alone, so little thirsting of the soul for the calm, sweet hours of unbroken solitude, when God and his child hold fellowship together as if they could never part? It is the want of these solitary hours that not only injures our own growth in grace, but makes us such unprofitable members of the church of Christ and that renders our lives useless. In order to grow in grace, we must be much alone. Those are some harsh words, aren't they? But it's true. What he's saying and what Jesus is saying is that if we fail to love God, then our lives are rendered useless. They were unprofitable to one another. I mean, do you see what he's saying? When you don't love God, you've got nothing to give to one another. And you contemplate that what that means. If you're not walking with God, if you're not loving him, if you're not pursuing him throughout the week, then when you come through those doors on Friday morning, you've got nothing to give one another. What he's saying is your lives are rendered as if they were useless. Because you're, you're empty. You've got nothing to give us. So in a sense, the most selfish thing you can do for your family, for the other youth in the church, for the other church members and for the non-Christians around you, the most selfish thing you can do is not walk with the Lord. So when you do that, you engage in conversation, you engage in relationship, and you, you're just empty. You got nothing. Well, he continues on and says, and so it is also in this way that we become useful to others. Now, he's got some good news for us now. 
It is when coming out fresh from communion with God that we go forth to do his work successfully. It is in the closet that we get our vessels so filled with blessing that when we come forth, we cannot contain it to ourselves, but must, as by a blessed necessity, pour it out wherever we go. So when we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, we can't help but pour it out in blessing to others. Our love for God releases the love of God for others. Do you see that? How our love for God, it releases our love of God for others. The Bible says in 1 John 4:19 that we love others because he first loved us. So if you go with an empty tank, if you go with an empty tank void of love and you try to go serve others, what you end up doing is you end up using love to get love. See what I'm saying? You go try to love others on an empty tank and when someone hurts your feelings, when someone doesn't reciprocate love back to you, then you're crushed. Because you weren't doing it with the love of God anyway. You were doing it trying to receive love from them. And so when they hurt your feelings or when things don't go well, you're distraught, you're distracted. But when your tank is filled with the love of God, when it's an overflow of your lives, you're not concerned about what someone thinks. You give it away freely and if they don't love you back, that's okay. You're not doing it for your sake to get love back. You're doing it because Jesus loves you, you love him, and you're giving it away freely. Now friend, the love of God that you have frees up and releases the love of God to others. I mean, how else could we love our neighbors as ourselves? I mean, especially when you notice the radical nature of that command. I mean, Jesus says, love others with the same passion, the same energy, and the same power as you do to yourself. The same intentionality. Now, I don't know about you, but I really like myself. I really do. I like myself. Now, this is confessions of an egotistical pastor. I like myself. I think I'm, pr- I'm a pretty good person. Now, I don't go around all day in my head saying, I love Dave Furman, I love Dave Furman, I love Dave Furman. I mean, that'd be weird. That'd be disturbing, right? I mean, if I just went all around all day thinking, I got pretty good hair, I got good fashion taste, I'm ridiculously good looking. It'd be weird if I said those things, that I'm really smart, that I'm really, really smart, that I'm, in fact, the greatest thing since the discovery of lamb tikka masala. That'd be strange. I don't do those things. I promise. I don't do those things. Maybe the tikka masala. No, definitely not the tikka masala part. No, I don't do those things. I don't say those things. But my actions throughout the day show that I love myself more than I love others. They really do, in all honesty. Most of the time, my actions show that I love myself more than I love you. It's sad. I repent of these things. I take good care of myself. I take better care of myself than you. I take better care of myself than my family. I care about my health, my money. I structure my life around me. I presume that you wrestle with this tension as well. I presume we all wrestle with the tension of, of caring for ourselves more than we care for others. It's hard. It's difficult. But I wonder what it would look like as a church if we worked hard to see this command lived out practically in our midst. I mean, what would it look like to love each other, 
the same way that we love ourselves. I mean, think about that for a minute. Think about that level of care and love and affection. I mean, let me just mention one area of application from our church covenant. This is the covenant that our members have covenanted together to uphold. And this particular statement comes from Romans 12. And it says that we will rejoice with those who rejoice, that we will weep with those who weep, helping to carry each other's burdens. And how would we apply this part of the covenant with the same intentionality, the same intensity of love that we have for ourselves? Be a few practical things. One might be we open up our home to a family who needs a place to stay for a while. We let them use our things. We let them stay in our house, eat our food. Let them play with our toys if their kids are there. We provide for them. We let them ruin our evenings when we like downtime just to be with ourselves. We take care of them as long as we can. Maybe it means canceling weekend trip just to sit with a friend who is sad and is hurting and is weeping and just needs a friend. Maybe it means adjusting our total schedules, our lifestyle, everything that we do for the betterment of others because that's that's really what we would want them to do for ourselves when we're in need. Maybe it means serving with Redeemer Kids once a month. You know, I know we're sad to miss the worship service with adults, but maybe instead you go and serve in the worship service with the kids and you point other people's kids to Jesus. So we love when other people teach our kids. Why not go and do the same thing for their kids? And it absolutely means that we forgive one another, doesn't it? It means that we don't hold grudges if we're wronged. We don't gossip. We don't talk about people behind their backs. No, instead we find ways to build each other up. And I, I was so encouraged just to tell you this morning, two people sought me out before the service just to encourage me, just to love on me, care for me. Uh, and it was a delight to hear those words. But friends, if we're going to care for people like we want to be cared for ourselves, then we need to go and do that for others. We need to be intentional and think through, okay, how can I encourage this person specifically today? How can I encourage this family member this week? What can I do? How can I love them with the same intensity and care that I love myself? And friend, if you have non-believers in your life who don't know Jesus, then the best way to care for them is to tell them about Jesus. Because that's what we would want them to do for us. I think it would look rather radical if we applied these truths to ourselves. But it's hard to do, right? It's hard to do with 7 billion people loving 7 billion neighbors well. Virtually impossible. It is impossible. And so that's one of the reasons we have church membership here at the church. And so we can do our best to love 211 members, which is still really difficult. It's still really hard but at least it's manageable. We can pray for one another. We serve one another. We care for one another. We rebuke when we need to. And we weep when each other weeps. We rejoice when each other rejoices. And we carry each other's burdens. And Jesus is telling us here that a privatized version of Christianity is not in his vocabulary. That it's impossible to love Jesus and not like the church. You just can't do it. They, don't, they, they can't be separated. They, they go together. If you love God, you must Love those made in his image. Not just the church. Remember, neighbor means everyone. It means loving those in the streets. It means loving those in your neighborhood. So friend, how will your love for your neighbor be expressed in your life today? Just think about that. How will your love for your neighbor be expressed in your life tomorrow, this week? What does that look like for you practically What plans can you make to love those around you with the same intensity that you love yourself?
I wonder as we go through these verses, I wonder if it's still like a plane going by your house so many times that your response is, okay, I, I got it. I know these verses. I know this passage. I've heard it before. Well, notice that's not how the religious leaders reacted to Jesus' answer. Look at verse 34. No one dared to ask him another question. They were freaked out. These were the religious leaders who planted all kinds of traps. They were the ones who, who came to Jesus, asked all kinds of penetrating, trapping questions, and now they were absolutely quiet. They had nothing to say. They didn't say, Jesus, this is some great stuff about love, some sweet things. Well, how about this? No, they were terrified, so much so that the text says they dared not ask another question. See, they wanted a more doable law. They wanted some earthly measure of success that could be attached to it. And yet Jesus gives them two things that were harder than the 613 laws combined. It was too much. They couldn't bear it. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. You might as well tell us to do a miracle. They couldn't do it. We can't do it. But there's a third thing we see in the passage, and that's the hope we can all have. It's the third point this morning, if you're keeping track. The hope we can all have. We see that at the very end. Look at how the scribe responds to Jesus' answer. Shockingly, he, he tells Jesus that he agrees with him. The exact translation would be well said, hear, hear. It would be an emphatic agreement with an exclamation point at the end. He repeats what Jesus says, and he adds at the end of verse 33 that loving God and loving our neighbor is more than the burnt offerings and sacrifices. You see how remarkable that statement is. I mean, here's a religious leader. He's surrounded by religious leaders. They would be right there in the temple courtyard where these sacrifices and burnt offerings took place every day, every year, all day long. And here's this guy saying, Jesus, Jesus, you're right. You're right. What you said is more important than these sacrifices and offerings. That what you said about love is more important. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I remember the kingdom of God from Mark chapter 1 is not a geographic place. It's not a place you go to physically at this point, but it's the reign and rule of God in our hearts, wherever we are. And we await the second uh, coming of Jesus to return and consummate his kingdom in all its glory. But in the meantime, it's his reign and rule in our hearts wherever we're at. And so Jesus tells this man, I, I got some good news and I got some bad news. There's some good news. You got some understanding. You understand that God exists, that there's one God. You understand the priority of my commandments. You're close to the kingdom. Well, that's good news, right? He's close to the kingdom. He's almost there. Good job, buddy. You're on your way. Well, close is good for a lot of things. It's good for archery, if you shoot an uh, archery, it's good for the game of horseshoes. Maybe you played horseshoes. If you get close, you, you still get some points. It's not a bad thing to be close. But with the kingdom of God, being close is tragic. Because in the kingdom of God, you're either in or you're out. And so Jesus says, I, I get some bad news for you. Sure, you're close, 
You're not far from the kingdom of God. But there's a flip side. You're not in either. Well, this ought to catch our attention, especially. We need to pay close attention here because it has huge implications for our lives. Because some of us may think we're in the kingdom. And yet Jesus says, no, you're just close. I mean, think about it. The scribe is a good moral person. He believes in the Old Testament. He believes in one God. He knows that the heart is more important than the sacrifices. He's decent. He's moral. He likes Jesus. Jesus seems to like him. He's a fan of Jesus. And yet somehow this fan of Jesus is outside the kingdom. I mean, it should startle us. I mean, we should look at the guy and go, Jesus, look at this guy. He agrees with you. I mean, why isn't he in? What's well, a penetrating reminder to us that just being a fan of Jesus or being a fan of church doesn't save you? Now, I don't know where you're at this morning spiritually. I can't begin to read your minds from up here. I don't know what the condition of your heart is, but I wonder if this is where you're at today. Maybe you've gone to church for a while. Maybe you've gone to church since you were a child. Maybe you do good things. Maybe you've surrounded yourselves with good people. Maybe you have some nice things to say about Jesus. Well, if this is you, this passage is a warning to you that you may be close, but not yet in the kingdom. It's because knowing things about Jesus, having Bible verses memorized, attending a small group each week, coming to a church service each week, and doing nice things and having Christian friends doesn't save you. It doesn't bring you into the kingdom of God. It doesn't make you a Christian if you work at the bookstall or carry speakers down to the van after the service. But Jesus is showing us in this passage that what the law requires isn't possible. Those good works don't save you. You don't get to the kingdom of God by earning the delight of God. Now, as a religious leader, you would try to live a good life. And if you sinned, you would try to offer sacrifices. That would kind of be what you would do to close the gap. But this scribe is saying, not even the sacrifices can do it. If I was sitting there in the temple all day long, 24 hours a day, offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, that wouldn't be enough. See, friend, no matter how many times you read your Bible or go to church or do good things, you cannot overcome your inability to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You cannot overcome your inability to obey God perfectly. You cannot overcome your inability to love one another as yourself. What's interesting is you're reading the story and looking up on the screens, the story just ends. It ends right here with those words of Jesus. Jesus doesn't tell us what happens next, doesn't tell us what happens to the guy. He doesn't give any further instruction to the guy. It just, just ends rather abruptly. Now, I don't even begin to know exactly what Jesus is doing here. I don't want to read into the text. I don't want to tell you something that's not there. I don't know exactly what Jesus has in mind, but perhaps he's telling this man at this point, well, I'm, I'm going to stop here. You're close. I, I'm going to show you something in a couple days. In just two days right here, I'm going to be convicted. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be tortured. And I'm going to be crucified right over there. I'm going to go to the cross for you as the ultimate sacrifice. I'm going to be the one who 24 hours a day loved you perfectly. 
But instead of the father saying, well done to me, he's going to cast me out. He's going to pour me aside. He's going to pour upon me all of your greed, all of your racism, all of your pride, all of your lust, all of your human stain upon me so that you could have the perfect record of the one who fulfilled the law perfectly and totally. See, friend, our sin against the perfect God cannot be covered up by our works, but only by the blood of Jesus The Bible says if you repent, if you turn from your sin and believe in Jesus, even now, he says that he will declare you perfect in the courtroom of justice. Then you will be spared the hell that we all deserve. Friend, if you do that, if you make Jesus the king of your life, then he says he will bring you into the kingdom. The only one who has the right path to bring you in, he says he will do it even today. Now, friend, if you've waited to do this, maybe you've been around church for a while and you've been camping out on the doorstep of the kingdom for a long time. Friend, step in today. Maybe you've been wrestling with it since we started the book of Mark several months ago. Maybe you just waited to take the step of faith. And I'd ask you, why are you waiting? You don't want Jesus to cramp your lifestyle or maybe you fear persecution for Jesus' sake. Maybe you're just embarrassed. Maybe you think, well, everyone around me already thinks I'm a Christian. So if I become a Christian and I say I become a Christian, that's kind of embarrassing. No, friend, don't worry about the approval of others. Don't fear what others think. Fear the holy and righteous God in heaven. And place your faith in Jesus. Friends, if that's your story this morning, I encourage you that there is nothing more important than true biblical conversion. It's you personally and individually turning from your sin. Saying, God, I'm sorry for trying to live my, way this, uh, live my life in, this, in my own way, trying to save myself through my good works. Or perhaps you've tried to give up your life by doing all kinds of worldly things. My friend, you turn from that and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. And not only am I sorry, but I am going to change my life. And you believe in Jesus to save you and you... Place your faith in him. You say, Jesus, you alone save me. My friend, repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus. Let Jesus consume all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Do that this day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we are stained with sin. We are guilty We have no hope apart from Christ. We know that the law can't save us. Our good works can't save us. Nothing we can do will make us right with you. Oh, Father, we come before you as those in need. And so as we look up to Christ and as we sing about Christ and his death, oh, Father, thank you for making us partakers of your grace with you. And, Father, with those who have not stepped into your kingdom Would they turn away from their sin and believe in you today? Father, we ask that you would draw them to yourself. We ask them that you would take them into your kingdom. We ask that you would make your fame known in this room and then use us this week to love one another here in this church and all throughout the city, that your glory would spread, that your name would increase, that your fame would spread like wildfire in this nation. We pray this in the precious name of Christ. Amen.